This morning, we're going to move into um, our time of, as we've been doing each month, of looking at our mission, of what it really means to be all of Christ and all of life to all the world. And this morning actually marks the last sermon that we'll be looking at on the heart. And last month, we looked at meditation of God's Word, meditating on Scripture as a way in which God grows us and works in us and uses that to shape our heart. This morning, we're going to be looking at a little bit different area. We're going to be looking at the area of giving and how God grows us through giving. Now, when we think about money and money in our own culture, the truth is, is that there are two areas that are often off-limits that, that we don't want people kind of asking us what we're doing. And both of them are private matters, right? One tends to be in the area of, of sexual relationship, and the other one tends to be money. And within church, within the con- context of the gathering, we often are more comfortable talking about purity and holiness in sexual relationship than we are even about money. And the truth is, is that within the body of Christ, God calls us to be a people who are givers. And as a result, because of a culture which has kept our, our money private and a private matter, this subject often is an uncomfortable subject. I know for me, preaching it at times can be uncomfortable. And yet, we need to realize that God is the one that lays it out in His Word. And the truth is that there should be a comfort with preaching all of God's counsel, right? And unfortunately, churches have, throughout history, mishandled money. And they've used money as a as a means or coercion, as a way of, of gaining money. And they've done it in a less than honorable way. And so often it's not spoken of with the candidness that it needs to be. And yet, God instructs it. You see, this morning we're going to focus on the fact that God uses giving to both reveal His faithfulness and expose our heart does both. And God instructs us to give as believers so that our faith will grow as we see and experience His faithfulness together. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is how God takes that, uses our giving to not only use it for His purposes, but to grow our faith and to demonstrate His faithfulness. So let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And this is what this passage says, reading from the ESV. It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But say, but you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? 
Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The heart of this passage is the fact that biblical giving allows us to see God's faithfulness and experience His faith-producing blessing as we submit to Him. Biblical giving allows us to see God's faithfulness and experience His faith-producing blessing as we submit to Him. Giving is about faithfulness and faith. It's about faithfulness and faith. You see, Israel was walking in disobedience to God. They were intermarrying with foreign wives, worshiping their gods, and questioning the goodness of God. That's what we see here in Malachi. They had gone and they had married, intermarried among these foreign nations. And the reason that God had instructed against that in that time was because he knew that once that happened, that they would begin to worship other gods than himself. And so he gave a commandment of not doing that, and they were walking in disobedience. And they began questioning the goodness of God. They began even questioning whether or not there was going to be a Messiah, in essence, that returned. And we see in Malachi, we see God laying out for them what to look for when the Messiah would come. And so Israel was walking in a place of disobedience. You see, God's unchangeable. And in verse 6 and 7, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's saying, listen, your disobedience actually should lead to destruction. And yet because I'm a merciful God, and I've not changed, I've continued to show mercy towards you. And it says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He's saying, listen, what was true of the past is true of today. The things that are still offensive to my heart are offensive now. It's easy sometimes for us to forget that. Right? We live in a culture that that values this idea of kind of new revelation, right? They, they look at the past with disdain. Well, we've come a lot farther. We're more civil. We've evolved. And in some cases, there is truth to the fact that by looking at the past, we're able to more effectively see our sin. For example, the sin of slavery. By looking back at the past, we can clearly see what is sinful. Can we not? 
but it's also possible to take that to an extreme where now we say, guess what? We can know all and be all. And that there was nobody in the past who loved the Lord. And the truth is, it's not really the case. Every generation will look back upon itself and see the sin of the generation before them. Because when we're in the midst of sin, it often blinds us. What God is reminding the Israelites here is this. He's telling them, I have not changed. I am the same God who I was, who I am, and who I will always be. And the things that offend me then are the things that offend me now. Why? Because they violate my holiness. Because God is unchangeable, he keeps his covenants and he keeps his loving kindness, which demonstrates his patience to us. And so he's demonstrating this patience. Lamentations 3.22 affirms this when it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Wow, it's refreshing. That means that God is always coming forth and working forth in this merciful manner towards his children. So he says in verse 7, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God is calling for them to repent. He's saying, return to me. Turn from your way and turn towards me. Repentance is that confession of the heart and the desire of the heart that was once looking towards sin and now turns away and turns towards Christ, but doesn't just stand there, but starts moving towards Christ. It's repentance. See, whenever we question God's goodness, it's always the result of believing a lie. It's always the result of believing a lie. What's the lie? The lie may be simply that God's word is not fully true. They had lost the trust in the word of God. They stopped believing that what God said was true. That he is a good God who is long-suffering, who is steadfast in his loving kindness. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why is it so important we keep our eyes focused on the cross? Why is it so important that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus? Because when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we take our eyes off of the work that Jesus has done, we will fail to see his goodness. 
It's through the work of the cross that we begin and remember and see the constant goodness of God towards mankind. And it is easy, isn't it? Ever notice when you really struggle to trust the promises of God where your eyes are focused? Your eyes move off of the cross. They move off of Jesus. See, when we look at Jesus, what we see is the goodness of God in providing a redeemer, in providing a savior for a fallen people. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Why? Because we are sinners. And the only way, the only way to a relationship with the Father, with God, is through Jesus, His Son. And it is a fact that God demonstrated love towards us first. Jesus is the revealing person and the cross is the revealing work of God's fullness of love towards mankind. And so, God is calling the Israelites to return to him. Now in that moment, what they don't instantly see is their disobedience and their immorality and the distant disobedience in the other areas. But he'll begin to point out what those real areas are, the beginning part of how people are robbing God. Paul Tripp points this out. He points out that money is a very accurate window on what is truly important to us. It exposes the fact that this side of eternity, it's really hard to hold in your hearts as important what God says is truly important. There's a dangerous tendency in each of our hearts for things to increase in importance beyond their true importance and begin to command the thoughts, desires, and allegiance of our hearts. If you're humbly willing to look, your desires for and use of money will help you see what is battling for the rulership of your heart. Joe Stoll adds this, it's not so much what you have, but rather what has you that makes all the difference. So, in verse 8, God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? The answer, in your tithes and contributions. So we're going to see three truths here about giving and the heart. The first is this, that giving is a reflection of our faithfulness and commitment to God. Giving is a reflection of our faithfulness and commitment to God. It is not the basis for our commitment and it is not the basis for our faithfulness. It is a reflection of our, of our commitment. It is a reflection of our faithfulness. You see, worshipful biblical giving, as we see in this passage, has a few attributes. The first is this. It starts with 10%. It starts with 10%. It says, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes. So that's 10% of their earnings were to go towards the work or the ministry of God. They were to be used for his purposes. Now, 
I, I, I would say this, because one of the things that I think is happening today is saying that this is an Old Testament principle. And while I agree that it is an Old Testament principle and not to be necessarily taken as law, the truth is, is that what we have a picture of here when he speaks of this is that tithing isn't just an Old Testament principle under the law. In Genesis 14, 8 through 20, Abraham brings his tithes to the priest Melchizedek at 400 years before the establishment of the law. It was a starting point. It was a place to begin. And so worshipful biblical giving starts with 10%. Begins there. Brian Bill points out the people of Israel did not just give one tithe. First, they were required to bring a tenth of all produce and livestock, or the financial equivalent, into the temple for distribution among the Israelites. The Levites then gave a portion of their tithe to the priests. Second, they were to bring another tithe during special feast days. Third, adults were required to pay a half shekel whenever a census was taken. And if they failed, they paid a 20% fine. Whoa. The point here is not that people ought to be fined, and the point here is not that there's all these other additional charges. The point here is God gave a starting point. And the reason he gave a starting point was because giving was to be a place in which he both grew our faith and demonstrated his faithfulness. It was to be the beginning point, a demonstration of first fruits before the Lord. You see, in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, when the tithe is brought to Melchizedek, what we see is we see that it's coming from a heart of thankfulness and gratitude, not of duty. Not of duty. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, the churches in Macedonia, it says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Worshipful biblical giving starts with 10%. But it doesn't stop there. That was to be the place that we begin. When a person comes to Christ, here's another area that I think has gotten jarbled up within the church. People come to Christ and then people are instructed to give. The problem is, is they're not told why. The reality is, is that in our giving, it's one of the ways that God actually grows us. It's through our giving that he teaches us that our sufficiency is not in the bread of this world, the dollar, but it is in the bread of life in Jesus. That he is the supplier of all things. And that when it's coming from a generous heart, it's to be characterized, as we see in the latter part of verse 8, when it says, in your contributions, it's to be characterized then by sacrifice. Sacrifice. The driving principle of our giving is to be characterized by sacrifice. It begins with 10% and it's characterized by sacrifice. 
See, sacrifice means that there's a noticeable difference in our standard of living. It's a great way of us looking at what it means to give sacrificially, a noticeable difference in our standard of living. Does it cost us something to give? 1 Corinthians 16.2 says this, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. It's to be laid aside. It's to be sacrificial according to the way that we've been prospered. See, the truth is God can do his work without our money. He owns it all anyway. But he's allowing us to be a part of his work. And he's using our giving to both grow us in faith and to demonstrate his faithfulness. John Piper adds this. He says, so giving bountifully means giving from a heart that wants to share things. Something has to happen in the heart so that the basic desire is now to give and share as much as possible instead of keep as much as possible. It's as though there was a magnet in the soul that used to be turned so that it pulled possessions into itself, and now something has happened to turn it around to the other pole so that it pushes things out towards others. What a great way to put that. The desire is no longer to hold for self. It's no longer how little do I have to get some of you who may have grown up in the church may have remembered the first time that you, you had to give. And I know in my family, I was taught to give, and I got an allowance, and it was $3 a week, and that $3 a week, I got 30 cents, had to go towards that. So one thing it meant was I had to change the dollar bill every week, which bothered me a little bit, <laughs> which usually meant that I could go down and get a pack of gum for 25 cents and a gumball for 5 cents, and that would, in some way, get that from the cashier and go and get that, and three dimes went in the offering, right? Now, I will tell you what, for me, those three dimes, it was a law kind of thing. It was a thing of, I'm putting the three dimes in, God, you got yours, now I'll keep mine, right? I have to do what, Right? It was about how much that I got to keep as opposed to how much I was able to give. But as God worked in my life as a man in my young 20s, God began showing me that he was the supplier of all things. And as a result of that, it became about what can I be a part of as opposed to what can I keep When we begin to see God at work, we get excited about what God does. And we become thankful for the work and grace that he's displayed towards us. And we move from a heart that says, how much do I get to keep as opposed to how much can I give? The third attribute there of giving in the heart is that it willingly submits to God obedience. Through our giving, God teaches us to be obedient. It's a willful submission to Him. 
He says here in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That when we choose not to give, we're actually willfully rebelling against him. Ted Tripps defines obedience this way. He says, Obedience is the willing submission of my heart to God that causes me to do what God has commanded without challenge, excuse, or delay. Giving teaches us to be obedient to the Lord. And it's an act of willing submission to God and obedience. And then finally, giving supports the work of the ministry faithfully. Giving supports the work of the ministry faithfully. He says, bring the full tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29, It says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Giving is a means by which it supports the work of ministry faithfully. Worshipful biblical giving supports the work of the ministry faithfully. It's important. It's easy for us to think that, you know what, I'm just going to take some time off. And what happens when we do that is we actually hinder the work that God is doing. Think about it this way. Giving actually becomes an example of God's grace. His grace, when we repent and believe on Christ, is the beginning. He sanctifies us as we lay down our life, as we submit, as we sacrifice, deny self, and take up our cross daily. He begins to grow us as we follow him. Each act of following God is a willful submission and obedience to him. And through it all, God doesn't take a break and say, hey, I knew I told you that I'd be there with you, but today I'm taking the day off. You're on your own. The promise of God is that he is always with us, always working. And so the truth is is that when we are actually walking in an aspect of worshipful giving, we are giving faithfully to support the work of the ministry. It's not begrudgingly. See, the tithe is to support those ministering within the church, the ministry to the church, and the ministry of the church. The tithe is to support those ministering within the church, those staff, the ministry to the church, what takes place here, and the ministry of the church, which takes place out there. 
So, worshipful biblical giving begins with 10%. It's characterized by sacrifice. It willingly submits to God in obedience. It doesn't delay. It doesn't argue. It doesn't make excuse. And it's not without challenge. And it supports the work of the ministry faithfully. So the second aspect then of giving is this. That the sufficiency of God's grace is experienced in testing Him through our obedience. The first is that it reflects the commitment and faithfulness of our heart. The second is that the sufficiency of God's grace is actually experienced in testing Him through our obedience. So how does God grow us through giving? He grows us by revealing and showing us His sufficiency as we test Him in it. Throughout the text, throughout Scripture, we see in other areas, don't put God to the test. But here is the place that God says specifically, test me. Test me. It's the same reason that he says you can't love money and love God. He knows that we will find our sufficiency in something. And in this world, often the sufficiency that is found is in our money, wealth, or our financial security. And so he says, test me. Follow me in this area and see if I can't outgive you. Verse 10 says, And therefore put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts. God knows that we will struggle to trust him in this area. However, he wants to demonstrate his sufficiency to us. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 10 says. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What does he say there? He says he actually supplies more. Did you catch that? So that you might give more. Notice what it says. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for what? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Wow. That's an amazing thing. When we understand giving in our own context today, most of us, if I took out a $1 bill and I dropped it on the ground for you, probably most of you would stay in your seats. If I took $500 out and I said, first one gets the 500 bucks and dropped it right here, it'd probably be a mad dash, especially with the people in the front. And my guess is that there'd be people run over and trampled or at least pushed to the side. Right? <laughs> Fair enough. 
You supply the 500 and I will do it. (laughs) When we think about our world and our culture, more than 50% of the world makes less than $2 a week. That dollar would mean a lot, wouldn't it? When scripture speaks of the fact that it is harder for a rich man to inherit the kingdom than it is for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. Have you ever thought that we're the rich man? For somebody who doesn't have much, it's easy to find their sufficiency in God. But for those of us that have much compared to the rest of the world, it's hard. It's easy to lose sight that God is our sufficiency. And yet God has designed giving to be the thing that reminds us that he is fully sufficient on a week-to-week basis. Every week we are brought before the Lord where he is reminding us that he is the one that is sufficient. And so God's sufficiency is experienced through two things. The first is a blessing of needs met faithfully. A blessing of needs met faithfully. Notice in verse 10 it says, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Here's what he's saying. Test me. Because I have resources that you can't even imagine. Not all of them are going to be financial. They're going to be for the way that God provides and protects. I remember when we came to Foothills Church, when God led us here, there were a number of things that were concerns on the table. I remember praying and saying, Lord, this is going to be about a $30,000 pay cut just off the top to come to Foothills. And Lord, I don't know where we're going to live. And God, I don't know how we're going to pay for our kids' school. And some of you that were at Foothills at the time know this story, but what God did in that time, in that week, was simply, Tim, take those things off the table. Trust me, you find out the direction you're supposed to go, and let me handle the rest. As God worked in our hearts, and as we committed here at Foothills, in that same exact week, The school that our our kids were attending came to us and said, we're covering your kids for school this year. We'll take care of that. Unbeknownst to us, an anonymous person came in over the next three years and paid for our kids all the following three years beyond that too. On top of that, a person came out of nowhere and said, I want you to know that if you are looking for a house, we're, we're here to help you. And we'll cover the down payment for your house. Now, we didn't end up doing that because of where we were at, but it was another reassurance that God's resources were different than ours. And our landlord said to us this one thing, I love the fact that your wife is at home with the kids. As long as you are here, I will never raise your rent. And for 15 years, until we finally moved, 
He kept that promise. We paid low rent while everybody was paying high rent with an owner who cared for his home, that took care of a home, that met our needs with a level of generosity that we could not explain. Why? Because God has resources that we don't have. He is the God of the universe. And this passage, it says, the windows of heaven. Now what's being referred back to here too is 2 Kings 7 and God's provision for the Israelites in ways that were unknown to them. In 2 Corinthians, excuse me, in 2 Kings 7, what's happening is the Israelites are standing at the door of battle with the Syrians. And there are four lepers that are sitting out by the city gates. And the people are going hungry and they're starving. And they finally decide, let's just go to the gates of the Syrians and let's just ask for food. And if they kill us, we're dead men anyway. And the beauty of it, they get to the gates and nobody's in the Syrian city. And 2 Kings 7 tells us that the Syrians had heard the feet and wheels, the sounds of chariots approaching the city. Four lepers walking, and what they heard was the sounds of a battle-ready army coming to attack them, and they scatter and flee the city. And it says that the houses were left with food, and the people entered and ate freely, these lepers. In fact, it says the lepers were so taken by, by surprise, they went in and ate and said, I think we probably got to go back and tell the others. You see, when we give faithfully, God does meet our needs. And, and that may come by way of others. That may come by way of others providing for you as you respond to the Lord. He goes on and he says, in addition, he says that he will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's the idea of overflowing blessing until it can't be contained. See, God doesn't provide for us just once. He provides for us in an ongoing way. He provides for us repeatedly. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When we experience God working in this way, and I, I want to share this. It doesn't mean that we become irresponsible. But it does mean that we move to a place of stop always stressing and worrying. And a guy like myself who wants to have everything planned out loses the blessing of seeing God's sufficiency. You see, we have to to say, God, it's yours. It's not mine. I didn't deserve it. I mean, think about this for a second. Think about somebody who works as hard as you but makes substantially less. Do you really want to say you deserve what you own? Or can you look and say, even this of which I've worked for is God's and God granted it in his mercy not because I was deserving. See, that's what giving helps us see, 
is that it's God's, that he owns the cattle on the hill, not me. That even what I've worked for is not because I'm better than somebody else, but rather it is because it is amongst his mercy that I receive it. There are plenty who work just as hard and just as effectively as I do that have less. And it is only by his mercy that we have what we have. The second aspect of God's sufficiency and the way that we experience it is through his protection. The first is through blessing. The second is through protection. Protection from being consumed financially. He says this in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now the word devourer in Hebrew is the word akal and it literally means to consume or oppress or destroy or eat. Most likely what it was referring to was a crop destroying pest. He was saying I will protect the source of your income. I will protect you. And so God's promising to protect us from those things that will consume or destroy us financially. One of the ways I've seen that in my own life has been by having a car that should never, ever run. (laughs) Many of you have known or ridden in this car. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is this, that God sustained it for us as long as was needed Oh, it wasn't the best looking thing (laughs) by any sort. It had no real amenities to it and a nice fresh mildewy smell. But it got me where I needed to go. And the truth is, is that we have no idea how God protects us. You see, God's protection often comes in ways that we will never see or never know. But we will only know of them when we stop. God's protection every day is upon us in ways that we will never know. Second Thessalonians 3.3 3 says this, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's his promise. And so the sufficiency of God is experienced through what? It's experienced through his blessing and it's experienced through his protection. So finally and last, the third attribute here, of giving is this, is that God's glory is revealed to others through his joyful blessing in our lives. So first, it reflects our heart. Secondly, his sufficiency is revealed through as we test. And then finally, his glory is revealed to others through his joyful blessing in our lives. As followers of Christ, When we give faithfully, we can rest in the promises that he's given. And as a result of that, God allows us to experience his peace and the power of his joy amidst our finances. You see, as followers of Christ, we have the freedom to rest in the Lord when the world worries. When the world is out and focused 
on how they are going to make their own sufficiency, we have the confidence that can only come through Christ, which is in his sufficiency. In 2 Corinthians 9, 11, it says this, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Now listen, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Our giving actually reflects God's glory to others as a result of his joyful blessing. We can live in a place of joy and hope in the financial circumstances that the rest of the world lives in despair. Because our joy and hope is not in the bread of this world, but it is in the bread of life. You see, the door to blessing starts when we turn back. When we repent and we turn towards God and we submit all things to Him, trusting that He is the supplier of all things. And so this morning, may we allow our giving to expose our heart and may we be strengthened in our confidence that God is fully sufficient to meet all of my needs as I walk in obedience with him. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. And Lord, as we prepare for communion right now, Lord God, may our hearts be one that don't look to say how little, how little must I submit to you. But Father, may we ask and plead with you to allow us to be more. May it be our desire to submit more, to come underneath your leading more. May it be our desire to rest in your grace. And may we be a people, Father, who live out our faith in submission to your word. And may giving be a part of that. Knowing that giving is a reflection, it's not the basis or the foundation, but it is a reflection of our commitment. Knowing, Lord, that you are growing us in your understanding and our understanding of your sufficiency. And that through it, Lord, you actually are using it to reveal your glory. Father, as we consider your work on the cross, may we see that we live lives that are to mimic that. Lives wholly submitted to you and wholly surrendered to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.